Well, good morning. I think I've told you before, but when I was uh, going through the DHP program in Lubbock uh, years ago, which is where Brandon just came back from, we would do uh, evangelism every Thursday uh, at Texas Tech University. And there was, uh, it's kind of uh, difficult to do evangelism these days because it's kind of uh, uncommon, makes people, un- makes people feel uncomfortable when you walk up to a stranger and start a conversation. It feels very unnatural. It used to be such a common thing. Uh, you know, to talk to your neighbors and everything. But uh, these days, it's not so common. So one thing we would do to spark conversation was we'd go around with a survey. And uh, surveys, at least the ones we used, were like dynamite. Because uh, these days, everyone likes giving their opinion. Um, and uh, it just makes people feel more at ease. Well, we would go around with a survey. And one of the ones that I liked using was just a character of God survey. And you'd say, you know, we're just doing a survey trying to get what, uh, trying to understand what some people think of the God of the Bible and what his character is like. And, uh, it's just your opinion. It won't end up online or whatever. And they usually agree to it. And so it's just like a, this list of characteristics. Do you think the God of the Bible is loving? Most of the time people would say, yeah, I, th- I think he's loving. God so loved the world. Yeah, he's loving. Do you think he's merciful? Yeah, I think he's merciful. Do you think he's just? That was one, you know, you get kind of, uh, mixed answers. Yes, no. Uh, goes on and on, good, um, quick-tempered. There's some negative ones there, too. And most of the time, you'd, you'd go through the survey, and you're just trying to find an open door to start a conversation after the survey. And you say, well, that's interesting. You said the God of the Bible is unjust. Why do you think that? And then that kind of leads you into the gospel conversation. Well, there's this one lady I was talking to. It's just a, a student there. And all of the typical answers that you'd get, do you think God is loving? Most people say yes. She said no. Do you think God is good? No. Do you think he's just? No. Do you think he's merciful? No. You know, you're you're trying to find an open door. Well, she gave you like 30 open doors, and you're just trying to find which one one do you go into. And and I asked her, I said, did you ever go to church growing up? Well, she said, oh, yeah. My whole life grew up going to church. In fact, my my dad's a a pastor of a church just in this different part of Texas. She knew the Bible, knew knew all the stories. And yet she held this position that God was not good. He was not loving. He was not merciful. He was not just. And I said, so, so what happened that caused you to, to, to come to this conclusion? And uh, I, I don't want to make anything up. I can't remember the details. But I remember thinking this girl had gone through a lot. Uh, she had gone through a lot in her life where she realized, I'm going through this terrible time. I cried out to God and nothing happened. No matter how hard I prayed, nothing happened. I was suffering, I was going through all these terrible circumstances, and God didn't do anything. And yet I look at all my other friends, and they're not going through a hard time. So how can you say God is just? How can you say He's loving? I'm the pastor's daughter, and yet I went through all of these things. And it it really, uh, it's, it's a valid question, I think, for all of us to think. I think we've all been in positions where we're suffering and we cry out to God, and yet it seems like heaven is quiet. Uh, Maybe it's a trial, uh, maybe it's a difficulty in life, and you cry out to God, and it seems like there's just no answer. And you think, well, Lord, do you even care? Like, are you even listening? I know intellectually, we we know the verses that say he uses all things to work together for good to those who love him. We know those things. But a lot of times we face these difficulties in life, and we cry out to God, we do all the right things, and yet it seems like heaven is quiet. Um. So that's what we're going to consider this morning. 
when we suffer and heaven is quiet. If you would turn with me to James chapter 5, uh, James chapter 5. When I started going through James at the chapel, I was tempted to go through James 1 through 4 and then stop at 5. There's a lot of difficulties in 5, uh, but we will uh, crawl our way through it if, if needed because there's so many difficult things here in uh, this chapter. I, I've said before how I tried to find a series that went through James at various chapels and everything, and I, and I found, I think, four series, and I listened to all of them. But all four of them, they handled chapter 5 in one message uh, because there are so many things in it, and they think, well, let's just breeze through it. And uh, I was tempted to do that. We won't do that. Um, I think the plan is I'll, I'll probably take three or four messages to get through chapter 5. There's a lot of um, bad doctrine, bad practices of other churches that come out of this passage, so we want to take our time going through it. But today we'll be reading uh, verses 1 through 8 of James chapter 5. James says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Uh, Let's pray just once more. Uh, Our Father in heaven, we do uh, come before you uh, this morning, and um, we just realize that we are uh, just in complete need of your help, Lord. Uh, We're we're in need of your help in understanding what it is that your word would have us uh, learn today. Uh, Father, we thank you that uh, the Bible is the most relevant book in the world today. And, uh, Father, we just come before you asking for your help in, 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 in di- rightly dividing the word of truth and knowing how to rightly interpret it and apply it to our lives. Uh, Father, we, we would not um, pretend to even think we could do this for a moment. And so, Father, uh, we just ask for your help and that you would speak to us and, and help us to have uh, ears to hear. Uh, Father, we don't know what it is that you would have us to get from your word this, this morning. Father, maybe it would be that we would be encouraged. Um, maybe it would be that we would be convicted and, and moved to tears. Uh, Father, we, don't, we, we wouldn't pretend to know what it is that you would have for us in this hour, but Lord, we just ask that whatever it is that you would have for us, Father, that there would be nothing in me, uh, nothing in each and every one of our hearts that would uh, stop that from taking place. Uh, and so, Father, we just ask that you would speak to us at this time. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I've mentioned before the book of James is a very unique uh, book in the Bible. Uh, You could say that of every book, but James particularly because James was most likely the the first book written in the New Testament that we have. Uh, A lot of Bible scholars have agreed that James was written before any of the Gospels, any of the the Pauline epistles that we have. Uh, James is uh, the first. And um, 
James here, he's writing to the very first generation of believers. He was also writing before the gospel had gone forth to uh, the Gentile nations. And so the people he's writing to are, you could say, newly converted Jews that have come to realize that the Lord Jesus was the promised Messiah. And he's writing this letter to them to instruct them on how to live. Uh, you would think that there would be a lot of fear in James's heart that they would carry some old practices of old Judaism into the faith. And so he's trying to turn them away from that. And so the whole book, it seems, that he's writing this letter to these um, believers who are newly converted uh, Jews and are now Christians, and yet they are suffering. They've suffered a lot of loss. They've suffered a lot of hardship, a lot of persecution. I want to suggest to you, um, here in James chapter 5, at least verses 1 through 6, it's the only time in the book that James turns his attention away from the believers and speaks to unbelievers. And, and there are a lot of reasons that I'll give for that. There are three things we're going to see from this text this morning. Um, three simple points. The first is the audience. We're going to try and clarify who James is speaking to, the audience. The second is the accusation that he makes against them, the accusations. And then finally, the admonitions that he gives. Um, so who is the audience? Uh, this is the greatest difficulty, I think, that you come to with verses 1 through 6. James chapter 5, I think you could attack it in probably three sections. And each section has a very big difficulty. And this is the big difficulty that we come to this one. Who is James speaking to? Um, most of the time you would come to a text like this, and if the whole book is written to believers, you would take the, the position that he's just continuing to address those believers. But I think there's um, difficulty if you were to take that position. There are some difficulties that you'd have to work through. And I just want to give you four suggestions why I think James here is not speaking to believers. I think he's talking to unbelievers here. Uh, the first thing that you see are the terms of judgment that James uses, uh, the terms of judgment. If you were to take verses 1 through 6 of James and you were to copy and paste it in Ezekiel, Amos, Hosea, I mean, Joel, all of the other Old Testament prophets, uh, it wouldn't miss a beat, okay? Because there's so much um, judgment that is mentioned, the, the tone and everything that he uses, which we'll talk about in a second. But the first thing are the terms of judgment that James uses. Notice verse 1, he says, Weep and howl, for your miseries are coming upon you. Verse 3, he says, You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Verse 5, he talks about a day of slaughter. Um, these are not terms that you would think you would use if you were addressing believers who needed to repent. Um, and so he, that's the first thing I would point out as to why it would seem to suggest that James is um, talking to unbelievers. I've read probably six commentaries on James 5, um, and it's split right in the middle. Uh, three people would say that they're believers, and three people would say that they're unbelievers. So you can take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. Men much smarter than I have um, wrestled through these ideas, and they're kind of split down the middle. Uh, but the second thing I want you to see is also the reaction of James. So he talks about the terms of judgment that he uses, but we also see the reaction James um, uh, of James here as he writes this this portion to them. Um, he points out that these rich people had become wealthy uh, through the use of unjust means. Okay, so he talks about how um, the, the wages of these laborers that you have kept back by fraud. He talks about all of these practices that they've done. You've murdered the just. 
Um, notice the, the reaction that James has is not one that you would think would be appropriate if he was speaking to Christians. And, and what I mean by that, we, we talked about James 4, and the early portions of James 4, um, he, he, he tells them that they have this idolatry in their heart, they're guilty of covetousness, they're adulterers and adulteresses, they need to repent. And then he gives eight steps, specific steps that they need to do to repent. I mean, very specific. And yet you come to James 5, he calls them out for all these terrible things they've done, and there's no talk of repentance. None at all. And I think that's very strange if you were to think James were talking to uh, believers. There, there's no talk of repentance, and he talks about them, or he talks towards them as if their fate is sealed. He says, your miseries are coming upon you. He doesn't call them to repent. He just lists the things that they've done, and he says the, the, the judgment's coming upon you, basically, is what he's saying. And so that would lead me to think that um, he uh, is speaking to um, unbelievers. Uh, the last thing I'll point out to you. Now, I want to say I'm not a technical speaker, okay? I really don't think that's my gifting. Some some guys can spend, you know, a 10-part series talking about one verse. That's not the kind of person I am. I'm thankful for those guys, but I'm not that guy. Unfortunately, I have to kind of be technical this morning with this passage, so just bear with me for a second. The last thing I'll say is that there are some inconsistencies in the text if you hold the position that he's talking to believers, okay? And what do I mean by that? Verses 1 through 6, if you hold the position that he's speaking to Christians, then you also have to carry that position into verses 7 and on when he talks to believers. It's very clear in verse 7, he says, Therefore be patient, brethren. So here he uses the term brethren. So he's talking to brothers and sisters in the Lord. So if you hold the position that here is James, and he in verses 1 through 6, he's talking to believers, then I think there's an inconsistency that follows in verse 7. Because why would James and his instruction, I mean, here he is, he's called them out for all of these terrible sins that they've committed, and then you get to verse 7. Therefore, because of everything that you've done, look at what he says, be patient. I mean, why would there, I mean, if, if, if someone were in sin in our midst, okay, and it was known to everyone, and... Um, and it was just known to everyone, and, and you go up to them, and, and you talk about all of these sins that they've been involved in in their life, and you say, you know what? I want you to be patient because of everything that you've done. You think, well, wait a second. Would that really be the instruction that you would give? If the elders came to this person who was caught in sin, and he's like, you know what? You need to be patient. It's like, well, wait a second. That doesn't seem to fit. No, they need to repent. They need to turn away. We need to deal with this issue. And so I think that's a, one of the biggest suggestions why I would think the audience here that he's speaking to in verses 1 through 6 are unbelievers. But that leads you to ask a question then. Remember, I've, I've said how, how the Spirit of God moves James to write this letter to the very first generation of believers. You need to stop and you need to ask yourself, well, why would James take six verses of a letter that's not very long and why would he address people that's not even in the audience? I mean, can you imagine if I stood before you today? I think I was going to use Canada as an option in my mind, but you're from Canada, aren't you, brother? Okay, well, 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 you ruined this illustration. But let's just say, let's just say I talked to you this morning and I've created this whole message for Canadians. And our brother's not here because he normally is not. But, but, uh, this illustration is dead. But, I mean, you guys would hear this, this message and you say, well, Nick, uh, 
there aren't any Canadians here, so why are you giving this message? It seems kind of out of place. Well, that, that's the kind of question you would ask with James. Why would James talk to a group of people that aren't even in the audience? Well, I want to suggest to you that in verses 7 and on, he then turns to these people and instructs them to be patient because these people have been oppressed by these rich people. So James talks about how these rich people have withheld the wages of of these laborers and they've cried out to God and God has heard their cries. And then he turns to verse 7 and he turns to those people directly and says, therefore, you be patient because the Lord is coming. And we're going to talk more about that, but that's the that's the position I, I hold, and that's why. Um, look at um, chapter two and um, verse um, five, and, and this is another reason why I, I would think that these are people who have been oppressed by the rich, because James has mentioned this already in James chapter two. Um, it's in verse six, but for um, context, we'll look at verse five. He says, "Listen, my beloved brethren." Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you were called? And we've already covered that in times past. I I won't explain that again. But he says, do not the rich oppress you. In other words, he's talking to people who are being oppressed by the rich. And we've looked at that in the past. And so that's why I think the audience of this is a li- of this passage is a little different versus one through six. Um, the, the danger in holding a position though is you read through this and you think, all right, well, if it's to the unsaved, then, then it's really not for me. If I'm a child of God, then there's really no, nothing in verses one through six for me. And that's true unless you're guilty of the very things that these people are guilty of. And it's very possible that Christians can be very guilty of these things that James accuses them of. And so we need to take the time and we need to search our hearts this morning. And as James brings these accusations before the rich, we need to ask ourselves, am I guilty of this? Uh, James, in his epistle here, he, he talks about the rich three times. And each time, it's not very positive at all. But I want to be clear that, that James is not speaking so strongly against the rich because of the simple fact that they are rich, but because of how they use their riches. And so if you're here this morning, uh, the temptation would be to listen to this message and say, you let them have it, James, especially if you're not a rich person, you know, let them have it. It's such a um, a sensitive topic these days in the country that we find ourselves living in today. Um, but the fact of the matter is, if, 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 if we have $1,000 or more to our name, we're considered rich in most of the world. Maybe not, maybe not in, according to U.S. standards, but in large portions of the world, we would be considered rich people. So I just throw that uh, for your consideration to consider. So who is the audience? Well, verses 1 through 6, it seems that he's talking to unbelievers. Verses 7 through 8, he's talking to believers who have been oppressed by these rich people. That's the, the technical part of the message, okay? So n- now we can get into it. The, um, the second thing I want to point out to you is the accusation that he brings against these rich people. The, there are um, three accusations that he brings, um, I'm sorry, four accusations that he brings against these people. The first thing is he accuses them of hoarding away their wealth. Look at verse 2. He says, your riches are corrupted. 
Um, if you have King James or New King James Bible, that word corrupted is there, but there should also be a note in your Bible that actually says that it's, it's better, uh, translated as, uh, rotted. Okay, so some, a lot of Bible teachers would hold the position there that he's talking about grains. The grains that they have have become rot, uh, rotten because they haven't been using them. They have so much abundance, they haven't been using them. So he mentions their, um, their, their crops. The second thing he says, and your garments are moth-eaten. Thirdly, your gold and your silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, um, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. So there are three types of riches that James points out here. Their crops, their garments, and their riches. Um, and the first thing he calls them out for is you're hoarding away your health, your wealth. You have so much abundance, so much abundance that you, you have so much food stored away, you can't even eat it all before it rots, rots away. You have so many clothing, you can't even wear it all before the moths get to it. Your gold and your silver, the one thing um, that you would think would be safe, it says even that has corroded or rusted. And and you think one of one of the um, good things about precious metals like gold and silver is that it doesn't rust. That's one of the things that's unique to gold and silver comparatively to steel and even copper and so on is that it doesn't corrode very easily and it doesn't rust. And so what James is doing here is he's using a picture, picturesque type of uh, language to show them that even their most safe investment isn't safe in this world. And he says, you have all of these riches and yet you're hoarding it away for yourself. And we need to ask ourselves, are, are we guilty of doing the same? I mean, in this country, are we guilty of doing the same? We have so so many blessings um, that the Lord has given us, and I think it, it's such a, a tendency in this American society to store it away for ourselves, to hoard it away for the future. And, and this is one thing that I really struggle with within my heart, and I've talked to a lot of people about it. I know as... as um, Husband to Maggie, as head as a household, you know, there are things that I'm responsible for to, to plan ahead for the future, to make, to, to, to make plans and to, to make sure we're on track and, and to make sure my family's taken care of. But then on the other hand, you really cross this line where you're planning for the future, but then you're also just storing up treasures in this world. And that's what he condemns these rich for doing. He says, you have reaped up treasure in the last days. It's very interesting. If you were to do a study on the, the last days, I always thought the last days was the, the time in which the Lord would come and finally pour out judgment on the earth. But one commentator that I was reading, he, he pointed out that if you were to look at the last days, plural, that refers to the period of time in which the Lord Jesus Christ came, was crucified and ascended. So it start when he ascended into heaven and it ends when he comes back for his second coming. The last day, singular in scripture, is when Christ comes and pours out his judgment and then rewards those who's, who he's called his own. And so what he's talking about here is he's, he's saying to these rich people, you have so much wealth, you've stored it up for yourself in this life, but you're not giving any thought towards eternity. Is that true of us? I mean, I mean, really, are, are we so focused on living a comfortable life that we forget, what does it say in Philippians? Our citizenship is in heaven. And we, 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 we spend so much of our life planning for the future, making sure things are set in stone. And, and I understand that's a biblical concept as well. I'm not trying to say empty your 401ks or whatever the case is, okay? 
But we can be guilty of storing up wealth for ourselves in these last days rather than looking to eternity. Uh, about a hundred or so years ago, uh, it was very common for people just like you and I. We realized that the Lord doesn't call every person to go off into a foreign land to be a missionary or an itinerant preacher. We realize that's not the Lord's will for all of us. That might be the call for for specific people in this room, but the vast majority of us to here in this room, the Lord's going to call us to stay here, to work diligently, to glorify his name in the workplace. But it was very common just a hundred or so years ago for the brothers and sisters that are in the same position as me and you this morning, they would live frugally so that they could give more to the work of God that was local and, and global as well. Um, and it's just things that I've been thinking about as I've considered this passage. You know, can the Lord say, Nick, you've heaped up treasures for yourself in the last days? Yes, we need to plan. We need to think towards the future. We need to make sure we're not a burden to, to, to those around us when we, we get in our old age years. But are we heaping up treasures in our last days? These are things we need to consider before the Lord. What you do with your money is, is between you and the Lord, but, but I think we can be very guilty. I know I can be very guilty of this as well. Heap it, you've heaped up treasure for yourselves in the last days. Um, the second thing he accuses them of in verse 4 is they've cheated their workers. He says, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Still don't know how to pronounce that word. I was talking about Sabaoth, Sabaoth, yes, Sabaoth. You can correct me later. Um, but they've cheated their workers. And um, that, I think some of us here have potentially uh, been in positions where maybe we weren't paid um, the correct amount of the, the labor that we had put in. There was one time I was working for an electrician, and... Um, and we had done work. I had worked for him for like one or two days. And uh, he, was a, he was a believer in the Lord Jesus, but he just couldn't pay me right away. He did pay me eventually, but couldn't pay me right away. And maybe uh, even at UPS, I've, I've come to the point where, you know, I get my paycheck and it's like, well, wait a second. I got paid for half a week, put in a whole week's work. You know, then you talk to HR, they fix it, give you a check right away. Um, I think we've perhaps been in this position before, but in these times, it was much different. It was much different. If, if the, if the owner of the land failed to pay their workers, for these workers, really their payment that they received was dependent on them eating that day or not. It wasn't like us, like, oh, you know, my paycheck's kind of messed up. I, I can, I can wait a few days and, and get the funding or whatever the case is. For these people, um, it, it meant them not being able to drink water and eat and feed their family. It was, it was very um, severe for them. And that's why, turn to Deuteronomy, if you would. Um, Deuteronomy 24, you see um, that the Lord had laws in place for his people to follow because of this. And this is what I think these, uh, these rich people were guilty of. Uh, Deuteronomy 24 and um, verse 14. Deuteronomy 24:14 says, "You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him the, his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out excuse me, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be sin to you." 
And so the Lord had set a law in place, knowing that there were some people in their midst who were going to be day workers, who were very poor, and the Lord says you should pay them every day before the sun goes down. Why? Because they've set their heart on it. If they don't get this payment, they're not going to eat dinner. And in some cases, some people could die. Uh, in these in these dire situations, and so this was this is something that is not a uh, small thing in the Lord's eyes here that they cheated their workers, and He uses the term Lord. The Lord of Sabaoth has basically heard their cries um, that have come to the Lord. They've cried out to God, and the Lord says He heard their cries. This is the uh, the only time in the New Testament that this term is used. What does it mean? Well, it's the Old Testament term for the Lord of Hosts, the Lord of Hosts. The, um, there's one other author, I think it's Hebrews, that quotes a verse from the Old Testament where the Lord of hosts is in it. But James is the only person in the New Testament that uses this term, at least in its original sense. And so why does he use this term, the, the Lord of Sabaoth, the, the Lord of hosts has heard their cry? Uh, one commentator put it this way, uh, the term describes God according to his omnipotence and his majesty. His hosts are of the stars of heaven and the angel armies. As Yahweh of hosts, he leads the armies of Israel to wreak vengeance on their enemies. These pitiful cries of the helpless laborers have entered the ears of this almighty Lord, and what that implies need not to be stated. So here here James is saying, these people who I love, who you've mistreated, have cried out to me, and the omnipotent almighty God has heard them. Now, I want you to think, here is James, he's writing this letter, and you have to imagine, if you are one of these poor people that have been oppressed by these rich people, here there's this letter coming from James. And finally, you get to this point. You get to this point where James is addressing these people who have been oppressing you. Just just imagine how that would make you feel, and we're going to talk more about this later. The fact that the Lord of hosts has heard your cries. I talked about, um, you know... There are those times in, in life where perhaps we're suffering for unjust causes, things that are out of our control, and we cry out to God, and yet it seems like heaven is quiet. We should be encouraged by this, that the Lord hears even in these times. And, and it's interesting, as we go on, you'll see that James doesn't instruct them on ways to, to, to change their lifestyle, to get this income that's been withheld from them. All he says is the Lord's going to take care of it one day. You be patient. And so we're going to talk more about that, but just how comforting that can be for us to realize that the Lord of hosts hears our cries. Uh, the, the third thing he accuses them of in verse 5, and this is one thing that's really convicted me, is he, he accuses them of living in self-indulgence. Indulgence. Look at verse 5. You have lived on earth in pleasure and luxury, you have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Uh, the imagery here that uh, James uses in this passage is uh, basically this, this cattle or this lamb who is basically getting fat on the day it's going to be slaughtered. And, and here, here is James. He's talking about how you, you, here you are on earth. You have this overabundance and you just keep on living in your self-indulgence and, 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 and you fatten your hearts as in a day of slaughter. He accuses them of living in self-indulgence, not caring about those that are around them in need. Here they are, they have so much abundance. They see these people around them that are in need, and their hearts aren't even moved to help help these people. 
Um, and, and we need to ask ourselves if that's true with us as well. Uh, here in this American society, we really, I, I, I really struggle with this personally. The whole, um, idea of living in such a materialistic society, it's so easy to just care about myself and the toys that I want in the future, the nice house, the nice car, all of these various things. Um, and we need to be careful that we aren't guilty of this same. It seems like the, the more the Lord gives, I think we should be more aware of the needs around us as well. Uh, we need to be faithful in little so that we can be faithful in much in the future. But turn to Ezekiel 16. This is the last passage I'll have you turn to. Ezekiel 16. Um, here the Lord is speaking out against Jerusalem in a very strong way. And he accuses them of being just as bad as Sodom. And he tells why they're just as bad as Sodom. In Ezekiel 16 and verse 49, he, he even calls uh, Sodom the sister of Jerusalem. We all remember the story of Sodom, and, and uh, this is just crazy when you think about it. In 16 verse 49, he says, Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. This was the reason why the Lord destroyed Sodom. He says, She and her daughter had pride. Fullness of food and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. He accuses Sodom here of having lives of abundance. And yet in their abundance, they weren't even moved to consider those in need around them. And I, th- I think we, we need to be very careful that we're not guilty of that ourselves. Um, we need to be very guilty, uh, careful that we're not guilty of the same. Are, are we mindful of those that are in need around us? Uh, if we have an extra room, if we have um, extra funding or whatever the case is, are we aware of the needs that are around us? Uh, the last thing that he um, points out to them, I realize this isn't a very encouraging message. I apologize. I can't change the words of James. So, The last thing um, he points out to them is the, how they oppressed others. In verse 6, he says, you have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. The last thing he accuses them of is their oppression of the, those that are around them. Uh, and we mentioned how they have how they have oppressed those. We won't talk much about that. But the rich in these days would be very easily oppressed by the rich. I mentioned how in the past, um, when we considered the, the rich that James talks about in chapter 2, um, if someone who is wealthy came and brought someone who was poor into court, automatically people would side with the rich. In fact, uh, some, some people were saying uh, in the things I was reading that um, as a poor person, you couldn't even bring a case against a rich person. Like it was illegal. No matter how much they had wronged you, no matter how much they had taken advantage of you, you couldn't come to court like you could today and accuse them of these things because they would just automatically side with the rich. And so it was very easy for the rich to condemn. It was very easy for the rich to accuse the poor of doing these various things. And and here, um, James, it's very ironic. Basically, he's saying, you condemned the, the poor and you have murdered the just, and yet there's going to come a day where the true just judge is going to do the same to you. And like I said, there's no call of repentance. There's no call for these rich to change their life. Their, their um, destruction is basically sealed. So here you are, uh, you're being oppressed, 
by these rich people. You get this letter from James, and he is addressing this this issue right away. And he he's basically talked about how their their fate is sealed. You've been wronged by these rich people. The Lord has heard your cries, and there's going to come a day where he's going to drop the hammer. And then he turns in verse 7, and I was, really this section ends at verse 12, but I, I won't be covering all of this passage um, this time around. I'll be covering these verses um, again next time we speak, uh, 7 through 12. But look at, at verse 7. He turns to those who are being oppressed. He says, therefore, be patient. Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And you think, be patient. James, you, you just said about, you've just talked about how these people have oppressed us, they've cheated us, they're guilty. Don't you want me, don't you want to call me to action? Don't you want justice? Don't you want right to be, or don't you want wrong to be turned right? And yet he says, therefore, you be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. That so goes against the world we live in today. Uh, there's something within each and every one of us, and the Lord has created us this way, to love justice. There was one time I was driving, and I stopped at this uh, stop sign. It was a four-way stop, and there's this guy coming, and he didn't stop. He just pulled all the way through. And I was like, oh, man. But then in the corner of my eye, I saw a police officer turn, turn his lights on, and pull over, and I was like, yes, justice. Uh, we, 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 there's, there's something in our heart that just aches and longs for justice, Unless, of course, we're, the rec- we're on the re- recipient side of things. But there's something in us. And so here is James, and he says, Therefore, in light of all of these things, be patient. And you say, well, well James, why, why do you think I should be patient? I mean, my family's hungry. I've done all this hard work, and no one has, has, has uh, paid me for it. And he says, you need to be patient, because there's going to come a time where the Lord's going to return and he's going to make all wrongs right. Every wrong that are inflicted upon us, the Lord is going to make right. And so what James is encouraging these brothers and sisters to do is to trust the Lord with their current situation in the future. Because one day he's going to come and he's going to make everything right. I talked about this girl who had come to have just such a tainted view of the character of God because of all of the wrongs she's endured. We talk about how um, we're living in the age of grace, and we love that. But unfortunately, a lot of times that also means that God is being gracious and giving people extra time, even those people that are oppressing us. And so, the, and so here's this girl. She had a tainted view of the character of God, and yet the Lord would say, be patient. Maybe uh, each and every one of us have endured certain things in life. There have been hardships that we've endured. People have treated us wrongfully, people we love, and yet the Lord would say, be patient. But everything in our heart is wanting to get even. Everything in our heart is wanting to get right, and yet the Lord says, therefore, you be patient, brethren, because the Lord is coming back. And he uses this illustration, which we'll talk more about later, but he uses the illustration of a farmer. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. He waits patiently for it until he receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So why the illustration of a farmer? You, you, think, you think out of all the illustrations James could have used, he uses the illustration of a farmer. What, what is he trying to communicate here? Well, he, he talks about how the farmer waits for two things from the Lord. He waits for the early and the latter rain. 
Now we have to ask ourselves, is this farmer in control of the rain at all? No. Uh, he, he's in, he's in absolute, he's not in control of the rain at all. And yet here he is, he's waiting patiently for the early rain. The early rain, um, it, it was before they had sprinklers and everything like we have here today. Um, my, 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 uh, lawn's going brown, unfortunately, because we haven't gotten, um, enough rain lately. But, but the, the idea here is that here is this farmer. He goes and he, he, he sows all of this seed. He does everything he can. He's prepared the soil. He sows the seed. He's taken care of everything he can but he's still dependent on God for the early rain. The early rain would come, would water the soil, and it would be enough to germinate the, flo- uh, the, the crops and to make them grow. But then it says that he also has to be patient for the latter rain. The idea is that that first rain that would come through and water the crops, it wasn't enough to carry the crops to full fruition. They needed a, one more rainstorm to come through and to carry the crops to, to, to full maturity before they could harvest them. And so what James is saying here is you need to be patient just like that farmer who has no control of the rain. There he is. He does everything he can. He works hard. He's faithful. He's diligent. But he's still dependent on God for the things he can't control. You and I can't control how the people are above us. You and I can't control how people treat us. But what we can control is how we live today in this day and age. And so he says, you be patient because the Lord's coming. And when he comes, that beautiful day that we were singing about just moments ago, when he comes, he's going to make every wrong right and he's going to reward us for all the right that we've done for him. And so we need to um, be encouraged to wait patiently and to watch earnestly for the, for the return of the Lord Jesus. Um, in the midst of our suffering, even when it seems like the Lord doesn't hear our cries, when we cry out to him and it seems like the Lord doesn't move at all, we can be encouraged by the fact that he has heard our cries and he's going to return one day. And we need to trust him with that. There are a lot of things in this life that come upon us that we don't understand and we won't understand until the fullness of times comes. But the Lord will return and he'll make everything right, wrong. I do apologize for the fact that it wasn't a very encouraging passage. Um, I wish I could have made it more encouraging, but James is kind of blunt. Um, so hopefully next time we'll have more encouragement. We got through the difficult part of it. Uh, next time we'll, we'll talk more about the encouraging uh, instruction that he gives. Uh, but let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do just uh, thank you for uh, this morning. We thank you for your word. Uh, but Father, more importantly, we thank you for um, your great love for us, the fact that you hear our cries. Uh, I think the psalmist said, Lord, I love you because you have heard my cries. And Father, that's that's true of us as well, to think, Father, that you would, uh, being such an omnipotent and powerful God, you would still be moved to hear the cries of such small people like us. And we do thank you for that. We thank you that one day you will return and will make everything wrong right. Um, Father, we just ask that you would help us to be patient, that we would patiently and, and, and longfully await that day where the Lord Jesus will return and we will be with him for all of eternity. And so we just commit this uh, afternoon to you. We ask, Father, you help us be good stewards of every day that you've given us. Help us to be faithful. Uh, It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.